Hello, this is Craig Camp at Troon Vineyard in Oregon's Applegate Valley. Welcome to Troon Talk, where we dig deeply into biodynamic and regenerative organic gold certified agriculture and winemaking. Often a visit to a winery can be a bit repetitive. There are rows of stainless steel tanks and pristine new oak barrels. After a few tours, they all start to look the same. But there are alternatives that can not only transform the look of your winery, but add complexity and authenticity to your wines. In biodynamic agriculture, intentionality is everything, and that extends to every aspect of winemaking, including the vessels you use to elevate your wines. On this episode of Troon Talk, we discussed with Troon Vineyard winemaker Nate Wall the complete array of alternative vessels he chooses to make our wines. Good morning, Nate. It's great to be back talking about uh, cellar work again after several forays into, into the, onto the farm. But uh, I, it's a really interesting topic today, the, the, talking about alternative vessels. There's so many different vessels used today in, in winemaking, and we're using quite a few of them. So, so, so when it comes to winemaking, alternative vessels would seem to cover all containers besides oak barrels and stainless steel. While often presented as avant-garde, these other materials are ancient, often predating those materials by hundreds, if not thousands of years. What is it about these alternative vessels that have inspired you to move your winemaking in this direction? Yeah, so I think it's no coincidence that the people who farm their vineyards organically and biodynamically are often the same people who look towards more natural methods of winemaking in the cellar. So when you're farming in a way that allows for the true expressions of both the grape and the place, as a winemaker, you want that purity to be appreciated in the finished wine. So our cellar practices are aimed at minimizing anything that might mask or diminish that purity, and this has inevitably led to the consideration of different types of vessels in the winery. Um, as for calling these other vessels avant-garde or non-traditional, yes, it is interesting that Stainless steel is now considered a traditional uh, material for winemaking since stainless steel tanks really didn't start being used in the wine industry until after World War II. So just six or seven decades now, whereas we have literally have 8,000 years of winemaking history in other vessels. So we have evidence from the Republic of Georgia of the use of their clay cavevery um, buried underground. Um, you know, that's, that was from around 6,000 B.C., um, and these same vessels are still in use in Georgia today. Um, and so um, similarly, like amphora, you know, that was used 3,500 BC in ancient Greece and all the way through um, probably 900 BC or, or later in ancient Rome. Um, and then I guess concrete really didn't get much use in winemaking until this 19th century. But this still makes stainless steel for sure the new kid on the block when it comes to winemaking vessels. Okay, so uh, before we talk specifically about the alternatives we're using at Trun Vineyard, what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of stainless steel vessels in the winery? Yeah, so stainless steel has some properties which does make it a great tool for modern winemaking, but it does have some downsides. Um, for starters, stainless steel is absolutely inert, so the material does not react with the wine um, directly in a way that alters the wine's flavors. Um, as opposed to, say, a toasted oak barrel, which absolutely influences the flavors. Um, so that's a plus if you are looking for a vessel that doesn't obscure varietal characteristics. Um, you know, that's a plus in my book. Uh, the, another strength, I guess the primary strength of stainless steel, and the reason, probably one of the largest reasons for its adoption, not just in winemaking, but in the food industry in general, is its cleanliness. Um, it's one of the very few vessels that you could actually like sterilize. You could hook up a steam generator and, and get it not just sanitary or you know clean for, for food production, but you could get it truly sterile. Um, you know, most other vessels, particularly porous vessels, which we'll be talking about later, um, that becomes basically impossible. Um, and it's not really necessary for what we're doing. But um, sterility uh, in a vessel, uh, can be an advantage for some, um, particularly um, certain aspects of modern winemaking where the juice is also effectively sterilized and then mass inoculation of a single strain of yeast um, that has been bred to produce a very certain flavor profile or added to sterile juice. So um, that is definitely not the way we operate at Troon, but that is common, especially in 
and larger industrial type wineries. So um, that is one reason that stainless steel is commonly used. But another interesting property of stainless steel is its um, high like, thermal conductivity, like the heat transfer. So this makes it very easy to control the wine temperatures during either fermentation or aging. You can just wrap the stainless steel tank in a what's called a jacket, and then you can pump either hot or cold fluid through that jacket, um, and then the heat is transferred across the, the steel very readily. Um, and so you can keep uh, a, a tank at a very precise temperature. Um, um, however, because of that same thermal conductivity, that means that those tanks are very sensitive to external temperature fluctuations as well. So this means that stainless steel tanks pretty much require ongoing temperature control all the time, um, unless you're in a very stable um, external environment like a, a barrel room or a cave that's kept at a very stable temperature. So because of that, stainless steel needs constant temperature control, which um, means that ensuing energy costs of heating and cooling and that carbon footprint, um, whereas that's not necessarily the case with um, some of the other vessels we'll, we'll probably talk about here. Um, an, another thing I wanted to point out, though, is that stainless steel is also completely impervious to gas transfer. So um, carbon dioxide from fermentation and oxygen from the air being the most relevant. Um, the, the fact that you... Uh, the, the gas doesn't transfer across the, um, the steel can be beneficial um, in, some, in some places, but can cause some problems elsewhere. So uh, we make one wine, our Glue Glue Grenache, and it uses a process called carbonic maceration. And this process, which is commonly associated with Beaujolais Nouveau style wines, um, those involve placing the whole grapes um, or the whole grape clusters inside a vessel that's completely devoid of oxygen. Um, we use it by adding um, dry ice, CO2, um, and then you seal that vessel completely, um, preferably pressurizing it with carbon dioxide in some way. Um, this allows the grapes to undergo an enzymatic reaction inside that tank, which converts sugars into alcohol inside the berries themselves. So um, this leads to like a fruitier wines with minimal tannins. It makes for a popular, easy drinking style of wine. But to make that style of wine, you need to be able to completely seal up a fermentation vessel that doesn't exchange gases. And so that's why we, we use stainless steel when making that wine. But however, being completely impervious to gas transfer does have downsides. And um, so other vessels will have like a micro oxygenation um, that occurs through like as oxygen kind of slowly enters through the pores of a vessel. And that over time can help like soften a wine. It can help prevent some what winemakers call reductive or, or kind of stinky or, or off aromas from forming. And that can, that microoxygenation can also help um, age the tannins of a wine, making the wine more drinkable younger. So stainless steel doesn't like do that at all. Um, and so wines that are aged exclusively in stainless steel can sometimes seem like harder or like edgier, um, less rounded, and maybe like a little harsher or astringent, uh, particularly in their youth, um, and especially red wines um, with, with a large amount of tannins. So um, lastly, though, and another reason that we do uh, use stainless steel in, in our winery is that most of our stainless steel tanks are variable capacity. So that allows, there's this little lid that you can just lower down um, on the tank until that lid is sitting directly on top of the wine. Then you just inflate a tube, which is basically like a big bike tire, and that seals around the lid. And so there's now zero like headspace in that container. So none of the wine is in contact with the air as it would be in a partially filled container. And what this does is it minimizes the risk of over oxidation. You know, we're talking about micro oxidation or micro oxygenation, I should say is good. You know, like an over oxidation is bad. Um, it can uh, alter flavors. It can also lead to acetobacter, um, which is kind of the first step of the degradation process of the wine into vinegar. So um, we use the variable capacity tanks as our blending tanks uh, when we put together finished wine a couple weeks before bottling. So this wine has fermented and aged in other vessels, uh, but it only stays in the stainless steel tanks temporarily. And then being able to drop the lid on that wine and remove all the headspace is one way we're able to use very low 
levels of sulfur in our wine. So, so this is great. But yeah, a lot about stainless steel, but that's kind of like stainless steel in a nutshell. Okay, well, how about the elephant in the room? Oak barrels. <laughs> right, yes. So the use of oak barrels with wine, um, I, I looked this up because I was curious. It does date back to the Roman Empire. So 900 AD is how long wine have been, has been being put in oak barrels. Um, and it's basically because they were a lot less fragile and much easier to transport than the clay amphora, which had been used uh, before that. And the, the Romans acquired this barrel technology from the Gauls, uh, who were making barrels out of the most abundant material they had at their disposal, which happened to be what is now French oak. So ancient Gauls living in what is now France used what they had, and it happened to be their forests were um, French oak. And over time, as they you know, mainly used these vessels for transportation, they noticed that wine that wasn't just transported, but also stored in these oak barrels had certain characteristics that they liked. So the use of oak barrels of various sizes became relatively common in most parts of Europe. Um, and the, thus the, the use of wooden barrels, which oak, but we'll also talk about other woods that you can make barrels out of that, that aren't oak. Um, they truly are traditional in most winemaking regions. But what started happening in the 80s um, really reached, I guess it's hopefully zenith, um, maybe by the early aughts, was the overuse of like never before used, like newly toasted French oak barrels. So uh, this practice of using a very large percentage of, you know, new oak, sometimes 100%, or I've even heard of like over 100%, there's actually people who will fill, put their wine in 100% French oak barrels and then age them for a year. And then after a year, rack them into 100% new French oak barrels again. Um, brand new barrels, so you actually get like 200% um, French oak. Um, so that sort of of uh, of use of of oak um, in winemaking that that is that is new, um, and that is associated with just dramatic changes to the flavor and the texture of wine. So um, I think it's it's that practice in particular that I think the pendulum's starting to swing swing back in the into balance there. But um, to talk about the vessels themselves, I mean, wood is a porous material. So this can breathe over time. So it does exchange um, carbon dioxide and oxygen through the wood. Uh, the process occurs most readily with newer barrels. So the newer the wood, um, you know, the, the more open those pores, um, as the barrel gets used and reused, those pores start to get clogged with like lees and tartrates and things that, you know, do get, most of it are cleaned out between fills, um, but not completely. So that barrel slowly becomes um, less permeable to gas exchange as it ages. But the, the biggest impact that the barrel would have, um, I would argue, is, is that um, it's a, almost a byproduct of how those barrels are made, and that's the toasting. So when, when you think about wood, right, wood is straight, um, but a barrel is rounded. So to, um, I guess, I guess it might surprise people to know that even today, there are no, there's no glue or nails or anything that is used in the production of, of oak, oak barrels for the wine industry. That is master craftsmen. Um, the barrel makers are known as coopers. And they assemble those staves together almost like a three-dimensional puzzle. Um, and they fit these together so perfectly that by the time they're done, those are watertight um, without you know, anything between them. Just, um, you know, they do swell a little bit um, as they get um, liquid wine um, put into them and that, that fully seals them up. But yeah, there's no, there's no glue or wood or, 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 um, or nails or, or anything that, that keeps those, those barrels together. Um, but to put them together, they have to take these straight boards, these straight staves, and then they use fire uh, heat to make them more pliable. And then um, as they as they sit around the heat, you can start bending those those staves inwards, and you drop a steel hoop around it and kind of bend them in a little more. Drop another steel hoop, um, but um, so you eventually get that barrel shape. But in that process, the flame is also toasting the wood itself. And that kind of results in the formation of different flavor compounds in the wood. Um, so the wood, unlike stainless steel, wood is definitely not inert. 
Um, so when the wine is stored in the barrels, those flavor compounds from the oak barrels and the toasting leach into the wine, um, altering the wine flavor. And over time, winemakers have realized that the way in which barrels were toasted um, during that shaping uh, process affects the flavors it contributes to the wine. And nowadays, you can actually control you know, the exact temperature and the time of toasting um, is, can be very precisely controlled. And you can basically order barrels um, that specifically add certain flavors to wine. Um, you know, the, the amount uh, of heat that um, a barrel gets at certain temperatures will actually create or release different compounds from the oak um, which then leach into the wine. So you can basically add flavors to your wine that, that weren't there before. And, um, you know, these flavors are like, can range from spices like cloves and cinnamon or baking spices, um, vanilla, caramel, toffee, like coconut. Then there's like, obviously the toasted or smoky flavors from the, the toasting itself. But this can also include like coffee and chocolate. And, um, then there's also actual sugars uh, involved uh, in the toasting process. Basically, the toasting caramelizes, um, like there's, you know, cellulose and hemicellulose are, are part of the wood. And when those sugars are, are toasted, um, they, they basically can become um, released into the wine. So um, anyway, the point here is that like a judicious use um, of newer barrels can add flavors and textures uh, to wine that many people appreciate. Um, but to me, like philosophically, if you're using oak barrels almost as like an ingredient, like you're adding a foreign flavor to a wine, almost like following a recipe. Um, and particularly with like a lighter bodied wine or, or a more nuanced wine, those added flavors can quickly overwhelm the actual intrinsic flavors of the wine themselves. And it kind of leads to an overly homogenous or generic flavor profile just coming from the wood. If everyone orders the same barrels toasted the same way and those flavors end up in the wine, one wine's going to end up starting to taste pretty similarly to, to another wine if, if those flavors are totally overwhelming um, the wine itself. So, um, but regardless of how, like, what the barrel starts with in terms of all those flavors, the amount of those flavor compounds entering the wine definitely diminishes over time. Um, and then there are less and less of the flavors present like each time you fill a barrel. So that's where the concept of this quote neutral oak uh, comes in. Uh, that at some point a barrel is just deemed to be no longer contributing oak flavors to a wine, but it's just a storage vessel and is now neutral. Um, but the exact point at which that occurs should be up for plenty of debate. Uh, there's this almost mythical concept in the wine industry that once a barrel has been used for three years, it's just magically neutral. Um, and I can tell you that is demonstrably false. Um, uh, it's now the summer of 2023 when we are uh, recording this. And in our cellar, our newest barrel, we have a single barrel from 2019. Um, the remainder of, we have probably 350 or so barrels. So those are all 2018s down through maybe 2010, 2009. Um, and that single 2019 barrel we have definitely is contributing um, some oak flavor compounds to the wine, even though it's now in its fourth year. Um, so it has, it has 2022 vintage wine in it right now. So that makes it, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22. So it's a fourth filled barrel. Um, and even as we taste through these older barrels in our cellar, you know, sixth, eighth fill, um, you'll come across some barrels that definitely taste surprisingly new despite their age. So, um, you know, that's that concept of three years being neutral is, is definitely not accurate in, in my experience. And but that is the reason why Troon tries to use truly neutral barrels um, in our barrel program. We do um, age. Um, much of our wine in barrels, but um, you know, with the exception of that 2019, but even some of those others, we do um, use truly neutral barrels. And um, even though, like in very small amounts, the flavors coming from the oak barrels, it's it's more like a seasoning, which could perhaps enhance certain flavors or aromas in the wine. But we prefer to have all of those flavors come from the grapes themselves and not get imported from the oak barrels. 
So um, that is, in a nutshell, like why Troon has been interested in these alternative uh, fermentation and wine storage vessels to kind of back away from adding um, external flavors and really focus on the flavors in, in the grapes themselves. Okay, so now for alternatives. Uh, let's get more specific and start with Amphora. As we've had the opportunity to work with them for a few years, where do we get our Amphora? What inspired you to start working with them and what has your experience been? Yeah, so we were really excited to get um, our first three uh, terracotta amphora here in time for our 2019 vintage. And since then, we've added um, some more. So we are now up to seven. Um, two of them are, are uh, extra large or XL amphora and then five, I guess, regular amphora, if there is such a thing. Um, our amphora are very, very cool that they're actually made right here in Oregon um, by a winemaker who is also a ceramicist, um, Andrew Beckham. Um, his, the, the brand of his, of his amphora is called Novum Ceramics, um, but Andrew and his wife Andrea um, also own and operate Beckham Estate Vineyard, um, which is up in the Chehalem Mountains in Willamette Valley. And that's also where the, the vessels are, are, are made. Um, he has transformed uh, part of his property into a, a studio capable with a, a kiln, especially capable of firing these very large vessels. Um, and as far as I know, Andrew is the only producer of terracotta vessels for wine fermentation in North America. I mean, there's actually only a handful in the world, really. Um, but I feel very lucky to have him and his pioneering vision here in Oregon. But I really started getting intrigued by the possibilities of <clears throat> terracotta or, or clay uh, for fermentation and aging wine by stumbling across the wines of uh, Gravner and Foradori, uh, which in Northeast Italy, um, and especially those Georgian wines. I mentioned the Georgian Cavevri, um, which are also terracotta, um, different shape, and those are buried in the ground, but kind of similar concept. And... I also discovered these wines pretty much at the same time as I was getting into skin fermented white wines. So orange or amber wines is what we call them, the, the name for wine when you treat white grapes, basically like a red grape, um, ferment it on the skins to produce that orange color or, or amber color as opposed to pressing it off and fermenting the juice as a, as a white wine. But um, so a lot of those, a lot of the producers who use amphora, like Gravener and Foradori, also make amber wines. Um, and so um, that's just, I kind of discovered that concept all at the same time. And to me, I guess, as we start talking about these alternative vessels, what a recurring theme in the response will be um, is that it's all about the texture, right? Because these vessels aren't adding any flavors, which is part of the point of using them. Um, and this is definitely the case with amphora but different vessels can affect the texture of the wine in different ways without adding or taking away. And I think that's the appeal of these, you know, like as an oak alternative, basically. Um, so um, like oak, uh, terracotta is generally also porous, but there's this huge range in that. Um, Andrew, when he was making, kind of first discovering how to make these vessels, um, he's told me he had to experiment like a whole lot with, um, just not just the um, the source material, so the clay, like where he was getting the clay from, what the characteristics of that clay was, but then like the firing times and the temperatures in his kiln and like getting the right grouping of factors of that that would create a finished vessel that had the amount of porosity that winemakers are looking for. So he tried a lot of different combinations to get... Um, like basically to get it just right, um, because if it's too porous, the vessel will just start to weep wine, like right out of the vessel. Um, in particular, with terracotta especially, there seems to be like a, a wicking action almost. Like um, if the if the out especially if the outside temperature is like changing quickly, it'll almost like it'll want to wick wine through the vessel. So it has to be um, not porous enough to allow that to happen. Um, but then you want um, you want the advantages that I described earlier, right, of having the, the gas exchange across the pores. 
So um, especially, you know, when used as a fermentation vessel, those vessels will be full of carbon dioxide as one of the, the byproducts of the yeast, um, um, making the, the alcohol from sugar. And you do want those to slowly degas over time. You know, you don't want a carbonated wine um, necessarily. And so, um, you know, you want it porous enough for that to happen and get that like micro oxygenation, that small amount of oxygen coming in into the vessel uh, in a similar way to, to oak barrels. Uh, the terracotta does that as well. And, and that can help, um, like we mentioned, um, it aids in the aging process of wine, particularly in the tannin development. Um, but the, what I've found is these Novum Ceramic Terracotta Amphora, I would say that the um, porosity there is slightly more than a new oak barrel. And those new oak barrels are, of course, slightly more than the neutral oak barrels that we use in our cellar. So um, that, was, that was definitely a consideration in how we wanted to use these vessels was that porosity. So it's because of that higher porosity that they have compared to pretty much anything else in our cellar. I knew that I didn't want to keep wine in them for much longer than about 10 months. Um, but that works out great because it allows us to use the amphora, ferment in it, um, age the wine in that for, um, in that uh, amphora, and then we empty it and bottle it after about you know 10, 11 months, which means that it's ready again for the next harvest. So um, that that time frame seems to work really well. It, it works well for the wine, and it works well just as part of our annual cycle here of of harvest and winemaking. Um, and uh, being able to use those amphora um, as much as possible. With well, our the sorry. wine moves very differently in an amphora, right? Isn't that an important part of the textures? It is, yeah. So um, a, an interesting, um, I guess, characteristic of clay is that clay has a net negative charge on it. Um, that's it's unusual. Most things are not charged, but clay particles are. And many of the proteins um, that are found in wine, um, in, in the lees, for example, um, have a net positive charge. So what happens is you get um, the proteins are like electrostatically attracted to the inside of the amphora. And that leads to some really interesting interactions. Um, so I guess first, if you talk about if you think about a barrel, so there's a barrel laying on its side. Um, in the cellar and the lees, which are mainly, you know, dead yeast cells from fermentation, but also some tartrates typically, um, that settles down on the bottom of the barrel. So during the aging process, those lees can break down. Uh, they release compounds into the wine that generally add like a richness or a creaminess to the wine. But in a barrel, those have settled down to the bottom. And some winemakers choose to, um, to lees stir, it's called like batonage, um, using a baton um, to to basically open up the uh, you know open up the bung, put the baton in there, stir up the lees. It kind of kicks them up, and then they remain in suspension for a while, um, and that kind of helps with more contact of the wine with those lees. Um, but in amphora, because of the charge of the clay, those lees aren't all down on the bottom. Um, they're actually attracted like all around, so they're like kind of stuck all around that amphora. And um, it basically, instead of this like two-dimensional, you know, layer on the bottom, it's like this three-dimensional like hug that the, the amphora is just hugging the wine with lees um, from all sides. And that I think is in, in, in no small part that could lead to the greater texture in the mouthfeel that you get in wines coming from amphora. Um, and this is all without ever having to open up the container to stir it, which means you're also not letting in oxygen. Um, that batonage process, that stirring process is definitely like aerating the wine. And again, if you are trying to minimize your use of sulfur, one, one purpose of sulfur is to try to reduce oxidation in those wines, protect it against too much oxygen. Then opening up and stirring a barrel would require a little more um, more sulfites in the wine to protect it from that basically aeration that you're also giving it. But amphora, that's not a risk. Um, the amphora stays sealed and you're still getting that, um, that kind of uh, creaminess and, and texture coming from the lees. Um, another, I guess, uh, component of amphora is that they seem to magnify or maybe elevate a sense of minerality in the wine. And so far, 
Our experience at Troon, we've been using the Amphora for skin fermented Vermentino. So we're making, you know, Amber, Amber Vermentino. And Vermentino does naturally have a minerality to them. And when these Amber wines are fermented and aged in Amphora, that minerality seems to be more pronounced, like in, in a good way. Um, I, I kind of doubt that Amphora like magically gives minerality to a wine if it doesn't already possess that characteristic, but uh, the amphora seems to really just help bring that out or, I guess, focus that attribute in, in a wine that already has that minerality. Um, but then, so so orange wine uh, with the Vermentino is how we've been using most of our um, amphora so far. Um, and an interesting concept there is that we're also able to leave those um, wines on their skins, um, on their on like full grapes. So we have five amphora that we uh, utilize for making our, our amber vermentino, and in three of them we put whole berries, um, and in two of them we put about 50% whole clusters, so including the stems with the berries attached, and then we put the berries on top, and then we seal those up. They they both ferment. Um, inside that um, that amphora, um, well, we we uh, we give them punch downs, um, literally punch downs, like by hand uh, during fermentation. Just have the lid off, um, you know, uh, punch down, try to move the the cap that forms, um, you know, move that around, break that up, make sure that you're getting some oxygen in there during fermentation, which is when you you want oxygen. But then when fermentation's over, we seal those up, we top them up with a little bit of vermentino um, from our our other ferments and then we leave them on their on their skins for that entire 10, 11 month aging um, aging process. So that's what we use our smaller amphora for. But we do have these two um, extra large uh, amphora. They're about one and a half times roughly, a little less um, the size. And those are currently filled with our estate Morvet. Um, one of them actually has some Morvet Grenache um, co-ferment in, but um, I was thinking about that one because Morved can have this pleasant earthiness to it. And I thought that kind of the terracotta amphora might be a good way of highlighting the that kind of earthy character that Morved can have. Um, and Morved also uh, can tend towards reduction in the cellar. Like um, Syrah is famously reductive and we have plenty of Syrah here. Um, but Morved does as well. So that um, porosity and that micro-oxygenation capacity of the amphora seems like a really good fit. Um, so um, yeah, we've got that experiment going right now and it seems to be paying off. Uh, we hope to bottle that wine later this fall. So um, eventually you will be able to taste that yourself. But uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to mention about amphora, especially um, some of these alternative vessels, but particularly this, is that there's just something distinctly satisfying about making wine in what is essentially like Bronze Age technology, right? Like I'm a big fan of science and technology, you know, I'm not a Luddite, but being able to not just make wine, but make, you know, clean wine and like compelling wine in the same way that this profession has been doing for literally thousands of years, um, that just links up with this. I mean, so much of what we're doing here, there's this primal energy to wine and it's like, it really makes you think about like wine has been with humanity for thousands of years and the fact that we can still you know make wine in the same way and you know just really um really show off what we're doing here um is uh it's just it makes me smile every time i see amphora standing in the cellar because it just kind of links you to that long tradition that just we as a species have had with wine um, and i just think that's a really neat aspect of a vessel like that you know, one of the more interesting things, I think, in the Amber uh, Amphora Vermentino is that uh, after 10 months, you've got whole cluster and whole berry in there, and you open it up after 10 months, and they're still intact. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of weird. Like, those those whole clusters especially, it almost looks like they came from the uh, the grocery store, you know? Um, some of those, it's like they could be, they could be fresh. Um, it's because those are on the bottom, so there is a little bit of that Kind of like I was talking about with the glue glue, there's a little bit of a carbonic maceration um, aspect occurring there. But um, especially as those vessels breathe over time, you know, that CO2 does go out. But um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting thing. And I think Vermentino may be particularly well suited for it 
um, because of the, the tannin qualities of the Vermentino um, mean that even after 10 months on their skins, the Vermentino is not like bitter or harsh. Like the, the tannins that are getting extracted into that amber wine from the skins are just um, just re really balanced. Um, you know, you, you might think that something that was extracted, I'm sure every ounce of tannin after 10 months on the skins, you know, might end up being harsh or astringent, but um, that is not the case. And I think the amphora probably play a pretty large role in that too. Okay, so we're about to have a major change here at Trin Vineyard and a significant number of concrete tanks will arrive shortly. You worked with one concrete egg last vintage making a Roussan. Why did you want to add concrete tanks to your pallet of winemaking vessels? What was your experience with the one concrete egg last year and how do you feel concrete will change the wines of Trun in the future? Yeah, we're um, very excited to receive these concrete vessels. Um, should be arriving hopefully within the next month or so. Um, and these are coming from Namblo. Uh, Namblo is kind of like the OG in terms of uh, standalone concrete tanks for wine. Um, so uh, in fact, I, Namblo was the first one to make like the concrete egg, which might be the way that most people um, are, are seeing concrete um, when they see it in pictures or you know, in magazine articles. Um, you know, would be this concrete egg. And, and that was, uh, interestingly enough, that was at the request of Chapoutier um, for, for Rhone wines. Um, that was only in 2001. So I was kind of uh, impressed to think about just how new a phenomenon this, this egg thing is. But um, concrete in general does have a relatively long history in the wine region, um, certainly longer than stainless steel. Um, uh, wineries in Italy, um, or certainly like the Languedoc region um, in France, um, southern France, uh, a lot of those wineries actually had these concrete vats poured and then the winery was actually built around them. So um, in some of these older wineries, they're an immovable part um, of, of, those, of those wineries and they were abandoned for a while um, as people thought they had to you know, go on to do all this new oak and that's the only way they were going to get good ratings and things like that. But the, they have they've uncovered and dusted off those concrete vessels and have started using them again, um, you know, with pretty good results. But um, yeah, our first foray here at Troon uh, was this egg-shaped vessel, um, and that is currently filled with our 2022 Roussan. And concrete does share a lot of similarities with the terracotta amphora um, that we were just talking about, but concrete is, is definitely its own thing. Um, and I guess the first major difference um, is that concrete is heavy and it's thick. Um, and we're talking like several inches thick here in terms of like the, the thickness of the walls. So this makes concrete pretty much the opposite of stainless steel in terms of like that thermal conductivity that we were talking about. So unlike stainless, which is very sensitive to external uh, temperature fluctuations, it also is really good with temperature control because you can um, changed its temperature so readily, um, concrete is actually very insulating. And so this really limits the temperature swing in either direction. Um, so during fermentation, what that means is like as, as the yeasts start eating the sugar, they, they give off carbon dioxide, they also give off quite a bit of heat. And depending on your vessels, like certainly in stainless steel, then um, the heat will just spike. And so you'll, you know, you could be going from you know, 50 degrees um, all the way up to like 90 degrees or, or higher um, within a day even. And in the case of like, say, Pinot Noir, like a very thin-skinned grape, you can just get a massive amount of heat occurring really quickly. But that doesn't happen in concrete. It's, um, it's just slow and steady wins the race. The temperature just starts rising um, fairly slowly and steadily. And then it just holds this temperature um, and like, we found that to be like in the in the upper 60s actually um uh, in most cases um a little lower even for our rusan i was like in the um in the low 60s um and it just held that temperature um throughout the entire ferment and um so that's a really nice fermentation curve for the yeast like if yeast um, get those heat spikes they get stressed when yeast gets stressed they can produce off aromas um you might end up with a very slow or sluggish or like stuck fermentation where it just doesn't want to finish because it's stressed itself out too much. Um, but that doesn't really happen with concrete. So, um, and then especially with, with the aging process in concrete, 
uh, Felina is being able to, um, you know, not just ferment, but age there, that insulation uh, value is really nice in case the there's external fluctuations in the cellar for some reason. Um, you've got the door open because you have to move barrels in and out or something and the temperature changes. And that's just not enough to affect the concrete. Um, the concrete just doesn't swing rapidly, so it's going to stay at a very stable temperature throughout its entire aging. Um, but uh, concrete then, um, like amphora, um, is also porous, uh, or at least it can be. So that's actually the main reason we went with Namblo, um, because Namblo vessels are just concrete. There's no liners or any like chemical additives or anything. Um, some other concrete manufacturers have these proprietary blends, which they won't really tell you exactly what's in them. Um, they, it does make them easier to clean oftentimes. Um, and, or they might have like a ceramic liner or something like that. But what that does is that dramatically affects the breathability of those tanks. So tanks like that still get that, um, that insulation, that thermal um, property that we were just talking about, but they do lose the breathability. So our non-blow tanks, the reason we're getting those is that they will breathe. And um, that's super important because um, outside of the egg that we have for Rusan, um, four of the of the five new tanks we're getting um, are uh, going to be used for, for red wines, for both fermentation and aging of the red wines. And like I've mentioned before, uh, we have a lot of varieties that we grow here that are um, on the reductive side um, of the spectrum. So Syrah and Morved for sure. Um, and so that micro-oxygenation aspect that porous vessels have is really useful for fermenting um, those those kind of varieties because uh, that a little added oxygen can help offset that you know reductive tendency they have, um, and um, so um, I guess another thing that comes up time and time again with uh, concrete, and I especially I think this is going to be even more true with um, with our red ferments especially, but is this concept of purity of fruit. Um, and so that is the main draw for me to using concrete vessels, um, is that we think that the concrete should help us reveal like the purest, truest expression of many of the varieties we have here. So concrete seems to just be a really good fit with, um, you know, back going, going back to the vineyard and having the biodynamics, which really help to focus the terroir we have, like here right at our vineyard, you know, help us express what's different here than anywhere else. Concrete, not adding any flavors to get in the way of that, um, but then really just allowing like a purity of fruit and just, you know, a, a purity of expression. Um, that's what I'm really looking forward to, especially for those reds. Um, but um, with the, going back to the egg thing too, um, so unlike the amphora, uh, concrete isn't charged. Um, and so that means that generally wines uh, in concrete vessels will settle out uh, really well, which could be a benefit. Um, especially for us, we don't fine or filter any of our wines. So um, having them settle out before bottling, um, you know, can, can lead to just nice clarity in the wines um, as they go into bottle. But uh, there's something interesting about the actual shape of an egg uh, that, that changes that. So um, the egg shape kind of encourages these natural like upwellings almost like inside the vessel. And so the, the, you know, this wouldn't be true for other concrete vessels, but for that egg shape, we're also going to be getting a dolia, which is basically an upside down egg. Um, and that does it similarly, but um, the, uh, that egg shape kind of, it's almost like a very gentle lees stirring as well. So, um, and, and that's part of the reason we put the Roussan in there is that, um, the, the Roussan is, is really high acid, um, and uh, it's, you know, our Roussan this year is 11.5% alcohol. It's, um, you know, it's fairly modest um, sugars um, at, at harvest there. And by putting it in the egg, by having that kind of shape help with that least stirring, basically, that should add some nice um, kind of fleshiness to it. Um, especially with the lower alcohol, sometimes lower alcohol wines can maybe appear a little thinner on the palate, but with that additional lease contact, we're hoping that that kind of, you know, really integrates with the wine to kind of um, build up a, a mid palate on that. But then you're still getting that purity of fruit from the concrete. So um, 
we think um, that should be a really good match with our Rusan, and it'll be cool to see you know, how we end up uh, using that concrete egg. Like We'll probably evolve how we use it along with our evolving vineyard here. So um, to be determined. So installing these new tanks is going to be quite the process. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, a lot of these tanks weigh four tons or more uh, empty. So, you know, 8,000 plus pounds. Um, that is past the capacity of a regular forklift. And you get into the, um, get into the world of using cranes or these massive uh, forklifts and then trying to, you know, get these vessels through a door of a winery and get them positioned. Because once they're positioned, they're never moving again. Um, so... Yeah, it's going to be a process, uh, but we've got our sellers ready. Uh, locations are, are all set, and we're just excited to get them here. And um, we'll be getting them, you know, and hopefully sometime mid-July. That's will give us plenty of time to prepare them so they'll be ready for this coming harvest. Because um, that's actually something interesting. You do, you know, people ask about this, about, well, like concrete, that's like really basic, right? Like a high pH you know, how does that affect the wines? And there's actually a, a process that you do um, before you use them for the first time is uh, you, you make a tartaric acid solution. So um, tartaric acid is the, the main acid found in, in wine, in grapes. Um, there's also malic acid in grapes, which most of the malic acid gets converted to lactic acid during malolactic fermentation in the wine itself, but the tartaric stays uh, the tartaric is, is often what leads to the tartrates, um, sometimes little crystals that might form um, either in the bottom of a, of a bottle of, of wine in the refrigerator or sometimes on the bottom of a cork, those little crystals, that's tartrates. But anyways, um, so we use tartaric acid, which is the, the same acid that the grapes will have, um, when we do a rinse um, of those concrete tanks. And it basically it's like, it's almost like seasoning a, um, a, a cast iron skillet. Um, is kind of spraying that uh, tartaric acid on the surface and you do that like multiple times um, just to kind of neutralize the, the, the surface of the, of the concrete. Um, do it enough times so that it penetrates in about the same amount of, um, that the wine will penetrate in. So you, you are trying to keep that vessel even though concrete is a more, um, a more basic, a more alkaline vessel. You're trying to neutralize that so that when the wine goes in there it doesn't affect the acidity of the wine. Um, and actually the fact that I just brought up uh, a cast iron skillet reminds me of a um, something that Andrew Beckham was, um, who, who makes our um, Amphora was talking about. But part of the reason I think um, that some of these vessels aren't used as much and one of the one of the benefits I was mentioning of stainless steel is how easy they are to clean. Um, amphora and concrete are not as easy to clean, um, you know, and, and neither is, is wood for, for that, um, uh, in, in that way, but with wood, you can actually use steam um, because since wood is, wood is uh, capable of, of swelling, you know, it can, it can move. It's not, um, uh, it's not as fixed as, uh, as the clay or the, or the concrete. So you can use steam to clean those, but with, with the concrete and the amphora, you kind of have to take the same approach as you do when you're using cast iron um, in your kitchen, right? Like, you know, you rinse it off, you get rid of all the food scraps, um, but it's, uh, so it's, you know, it's clean, it's sanitary, but the process of cooking with, with cast iron also cleans it, right? Um, in the same way that with, um, with concrete and amphora, um, you kind of need to be accepting of a certain amount of, um, I guess, uh, a, a more casual approach um, to, to cleaning in that you're, you're never going to get those, those vessels uh, totally clean. But that kind of goes back to one of our philosophies here is that like, we are not at war with our microbiology. Like our micro we, Everything we do out in the vineyard, especially with biodynamics, regenerative farming, it's really building these healthy, stable microbial populations in the soils, you know, in the vineyard, on the grapes, when they come in, they have healthy um, bacteria on them. We're not as concerned about uh, the presence of um, spoilage organisms, mainly because there's no room for those spoilage organisms to like get a toehold in our ferments. So um, we've got um, it's 
I guess uh, a lot of, of wineries that do kind of use that whole, hey, we add tons of sulfur at crush, we sterilize our juice, we only add this one yeast, we only want this one yeast and not a single other microorganism present you know, in our wine, um, they, they might be terrified of uh, vessels that you can't sterilize. But um, so they, they miss out on a lot of the benefits of M4 on concrete um, because we're more understanding and, and more loving of our microbial friends. Um, that, that technique works well for us. And um, it's similar to a cast iron skillet. The more you use them over time, like the, the better those um, vessels are, are known to get. Um, so we're uh, yeah, looking forward to continuing uh, using these vessels in years to come. Wood can be alternative too. We have two large oak foudres as well as some acacia barrels, which have an important role in your winemaking strategy. How do these fit into our winemaking program? Yeah, so we've already discussed wood and, and oak in, in great detail, but um, we didn't really talk about the differences between um, the different types of wood or why that matters. So I guess first we can talk about oak again real quick. So French oak is kind of the international standard in terms of wood, um, both for barrels or for larger wooden objects. Like you mentioned, um, Fudra, we have um, these, what are essentially a barrel standing on its head um, with, without a top. And it's just a large open top that, um, that's, Fudra is just a generic term basically for a, a, a large wooden vessel that's, n you know, not a barrel. Um, but, um, you know, the, the French oak thing started because that's what the Gauls had in France, um, and that's what they were using, and then people decided that they liked that, um, the characteristics that it, it provided. Um, and what's interesting is even in French oak, and this is a total rabbit hole you can go down, but different forests grow differently. Um, basically, the, the trees respond to the climate um, around them, and depending on like how quickly it grows or the climate, it affects the, like, the growth rate of the tree, and then it affects like the grain of the wood, which ultimately um, affects the porosity of a barrel or a vessel made from that wood. Um, French oak in general is pretty tight grained, um, so it's, it's less porous than, than some others. Um, and, but then these different forests in France will have like slightly different porosity, um, they'll have different characteristics that when toasted, it gives them slightly different, you know, tastes or smells. Um, even when they're toasted identically, the, the wood and the forest themselves um, uh, has, has a, a, a bearing on the final product. Um, so you can totally go deep in that if you want. Um, but then there's other European oaks, um, especially Hungarian. Um, and it's the same oak species. Uh, generally, there's a couple, or there's like two or three really in France, but... Um, the same oak species uh, that just grows in Hungary. And so Hungary also makes a lot of um, what is ultimately like the same French oak, um, but it's going to taste different. It grows differently in Hungary. It has different porosity. Um, and then people know of American oak um, that's actually made from a, a different species than the European oak. So um, we, have, we have white oaks here, which is what's generally um, used. And Oregon ha um, also has white oaks um, are native to, to Oregon. Um, but uh, the American oak, it's a much looser grain. And so this allows for more oxygen um, even than in the newer French oak. I mentioned that the newer barrels have more um, than the older barrels. Well, American oak has even more than, than French oak. And um, then this also means that um, American oak allows more of those flavor compounds to soak into the wine. Um, so it's kind of considered maybe a little more aggressive um, than French oak. And I would love the, con I mean, I, I love the concept of using an American grown oak for our neutral barrels. But if we did that, I don't even know how old those barrels would have to be before an American oak would actually get neutral. I don't even know if American oak can get neutral. Like um, the, the, you'd probably have cracked staves and you'd probably have to get rid of that barrel for some other reason before oak, uh, an American oak barrel actually um, got to neutrality where it was not um, fundamentally altering the flavors of the wine in it. So, um, so I, I like that concept, but um, that's why we generally um, use other people's um, you know, uh, barrels that they've used for a while. So we're still reusing, um, but we, we don't 
uh, source than uh, locally. But um, I can understand why people would. But, um, but there are other types of wood um, that can make barrels too, and that's what I wanted to talk about now, um, specifically acacia. Um, although I've been intrigued by chestnut because uh, chestnut has been historically used in the Rhone, and there are coopers that make chestnut, but I would never be able to get a neutral chestnut barrel, I can tell you that. And, um, and I've never used it, and um, I understand that that's possibly even more porous than American oak, so it could be, uh, could be difficult. But um, acacia, I do like. Um, and um, with acacia, it's, it's kind of confusing. I've tried to ask about this more, but there are literally thousands of um, different like, genera and species that are all called acacia. So as far as I can tell, there's just not one acacia tree um, that people use um, to make anything from acacia. So. Uh, acacia aren't native to Europe. They were introduced like in the 1600s and they took all different routes of getting there. Um, they're more native to like um, more tropical, subtropical areas, of Africa, um, Australia, things like that. And um, so I'm not, you know, it's, it's hard to tell what acacia is actually being used. Um, but what I do know is that the acacia barrels that um, I've used in the past uh, what they seem to do is they really elevate or like promote floral characteristics in wine. Um, but then they also have a texture effect. I said, you know, we'll be coming back to texture a lot, but, um, but with acacia, it, it almost also increases like the viscosity of the wine. Um, and so the, the floral with the texture, it also adds some this keeps dinging. I wonder if I should. Is, I wonder if that comes through as soon as next year. Um, but uh, gum arabic is one of the oh, I don't know, hundred some odd um, allowed wine additives. Um, but uh, gum arabic comes from acacia trees. Um, it's also used. You you probably you may have seen it in other ingredients lists for other foods. It's used as like thickeners and emulsifiers and stuff, and in like frostings and like some baked goods and things like that. Um, so it's you know there's nothing. Too, too scary about it as an ingredient. It's just, I'm you know, annoyed that it does not have to be listed on wine labels. Um, but um, you know, we don't use um, any additives at Troon, but um, the, the gum arabic that's used in a concentrated form um, as, a, as a wine additive, um, it's extracted from the acacia and it does have a, um, a like textural element to it. So, um, that it's kind of no surprise to me that acacia barrels have a similar, although like much less intense, um, effect on the wine. Um, and so I think that textural element's probably related to that. But um, at Troon, we, I only have a couple of acacia barrels. Um, and I use them exclusively for our um, orange or amber wines. So um, like skin fermented Viognier and Vermentino in particular. Um, uh, and also we used to have the, the Riesling. Um, skin fermented Riesling in them and that like I guess what all those have in common and what I've found works so well with acacia is they are all known to have you know they're, they're all relatively um, aromatic um, they also have a lot of floral characteristics um, certainly in the white um, varieties uh, of those grapes so this is what I think acacia does really well is that that um, you know, supporting or uplifting those floral characteristics. And then that textural element of acacia seems to play really nicely with amber wines. So these amber wines, you know, are fermented on their skins. They already have a lot of texture um, coming from the skin tannins of the grapes. And that skin tannin texture seems to integrate really nicely with what the um, acacia barrel offers. So I think it's a, a really great um, mix with uh, to store, um, you know, age amber wines in acacia barrels. And like I said, I only have a couple, so um, it's like, you know, in, in our, for example, our Coulis Bench Amber, uh, acacia maybe like probably 5% of the actual wine in that, um, in that, in that wine was aged in acacia. But even then, it's um, that little bit of a thumbprint, I think is um, a pretty interesting textural element that it can add um, and again, all of our acacia barrels are also neutral. So, um, you know, the, the, theoretically, you know, that's that uh, what they do 
is uh, is supportive rather than you know certainly overwhelming um, any particular aspect of the wine. Um, and then in Fudra, you know, Craig, you mentioned Fudra, and um, so we do have um, these two large uh, fermentation vessels. Um, it's basically it's they're like kind of conical. They like taper a little bit, but in general, it's just a big cylinder. Um, and it's open-topped. So because it's open-topped, we can't store any wine in them. There's not like a lid. Um, so we use them for fermentation. Um, and the same, you know, concepts that when we were talking about wood um, for storage, um, also those concepts are, are important for fermentation. And the biggest one is that porosity, which allows some oxygen to get through the vessels. Um, these are originally French oak. Um, they're they're 2007 i believe is both of those so they're very neutral at this point um they but they still allow oxygen through the vessel and um most of our other red wines are fermented in bins uh one and a half ton bins in those bins um you know they're also open tops so you get um, oxygen through the top but not through the sides of the wines and like through the sides of that vessel i guess i should say so um the, the same things, you know, talking about reductive varieties, um, having that oxygen present during fermentation is, is really helpful, um, you know, help with those reductive tendencies, but then also with things like tanat, um, which is, um, we actually sometimes ferment our tanat with a little bit of Malbec, um, but the, um, that micro-oxygenation doesn't help just with reductive tendencies, but it can also help with the tannins. Um, to not can have you know pretty pretty monolithic tannins sometimes, and when we ferment our tannat in the fudra, the um, even even right after pressing off even that young wine, you, there's a distinct difference between the the tannin texture in um, the the tannat um, that has been fermented in fudra versus the tannat that's um, been fermented in our one and a half ton bins. So uh, those those. Both the shape and the size, um, they're also two-ton fermenters, so they're a little bit larger than our regular ferments. That just adds a little more thermal mass, which um, adds a little more heat, basically. You've got a little more um, a little more material fermenting. It generates a little more heat. Um, the, uh, the wood is also slightly insulating, so you do get um, a pretty nice uh, temperature curves during your fermentation. You know, the, the, it doesn't heat up um, particularly fast. It keeps a nice stable temperature um, throughout the ferment. So um, yeah, we've we've found that both the Tanat as well as some of our reductive varieties, we've, we've used the Fudro with Syrah um, as well. And those are both really nice um, matches for, you know, using this. And I guess the difference here um, is that since this is only a fermentation um, vessel, you know, we, uh, we transfer the wines um, after after they're pressed off into barrel, but we keep them separate. So um, the wines that come from the that were fermented in the Fuja are kept separate from the wines that were fermented in our one and a half ton bins, and we get to taste that wine as it evolves in the cellar. And you know, starting on day one and then throughout its entire evolution in the cellar, you know, you can you can taste differences. Um, in particularly the tannin textures um, based solely off of that fermentation vessel. So um, it's, uh, it's, that's a good tool for us to have. So Nate, you'll be working with a wide variety of vessels that include uh, neutral barrels, pudra, amphora, concrete, and stainless steel. What does it mean to you as a winemaker to have all these options to work with? Yeah, so I'm going to bring this back to the vineyard again. Um, when we planted our vineyard here, we put a lot of thought into the grape selection. Uh, we did soil studies and test pits and we looked at our climate data and we really tried to pick um, the varieties that would grow really well here. Um, that's particularly important to us to have the grape match this place because we don't manipulate our juice chemistry in any way after harvest. So while many wineries will add you know, acid or they might water back their wine if, um, if there was too high of sugars, um, you know, we don't do that, so we really need to have our grapes balanced in the vineyard because once they're picked, their chemistry is set and we're going to go with it. Um, that same ethos is also present in our winemaking. So because we're not going to manipulate the wine in the cellar, we need to figure out like what is the best way to express each variety to its fullest potential. 
And I mean, I've sometimes said that I don't make the wines I want to make. I make the wines that Churn Vineyard wants to make. So I may have some intuition about what that best path for a certain wine to take may be. But um, I have to approach that with a very open mind and you have to experiment um, to see um, like, like in the winemaking, like what what's the best result for that wine? Like how is that wine most true to itself and how do I get it there? And I, I love the fact that in French um, they use the term élevage um, that describes the process of basically raising élevage, elevating a wine. So about raising, that's best understood in the same way that like a parent raises a child, right? It's that same concept that a winemaker is raising a wine, élevage. Um, and so I'm a father myself and I can understand the struggles involved with an endeavor like that. Like if you try to enforce your will too strongly without paying attention to the hopes and dreams of that child or wine, um, the result can sometimes be a rebellion against that very thing that you're, you're trying to instill, right? And the pendulum just swings in the other direction. So in the cellar, I think the role of the winemaker is to guide that young wine like through elevage. And that's listening, you know, intently to the needs um, of that wine and guiding it in a way that it wishes to express itself. Um, you know, so when we talk about wine being made in the vineyard, that's true to the extent that you can't make great wine from mediocre grapes. Um, but there is an art in guiding that wine through its time in the cellar until it's ready for bottling. And somewhere between the vineyard and the bottle is like where something profound can happen if you are attentive enough to let it do just that. And that is what we try to do here. And having all of these you know, tools at our disposal in the, the winery through different vessels or different techniques, different ways to approach each grape uh, in hoping to just allow that grape to find this the truest, purest expression of itself. Well, thank you, Nate. It's going to be exciting to see uh, the future for Troon Wines with all these uh, new vessels and new expressions. And I'm really looking forward to the wines you make from them. I am too, yeah. We will continue our experimentation and uh, there'll be loads of new things coming online over the years. So yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about for years to come. <laughs> we are happy to share this podcast with you from Troon Vineyard a Demeter Biodynamic and Regenerative Organic Certified Winery in Oregon's Applegate Valley. We farm like the world depends on it and produce authentic, naturally crafted wines. We will be sharing these in-depth podcasts several times a month. To learn more, I encourage you to visit our website at truenvineyard.com and those of the Regenerative Organic Alliance at regenorganic.org and Demeter Biodynamics at demeter-usa.org. Thanks for sharing our voyage to regenerative agriculture with us.